Hi, this is QD Clinic. I'm Jack Cush with Room Now. QD Clinic is brought to you by Room Now Live, March 2021 in Fort Worth, and live stream to you. So today's case is hurts all over. Seems like we talk about this a lot. We should continue to talk about it. Saw a 37-year-old gal who came in, and in her first line, she actually told me what the diagnosis was. I'm not going to tell you that line. It's going to tell you that she hurt all over, mostly limbs and uh, arms and legs and feet and hands and back and neck and hurts all over, you know, shoulders, elbows, wrists, whatever. So that falls under the category of algas, both arts algas and myalgas. It doesn't really seem to matter in most cases, whether it's more arthralgia, a little more myalgia. To me, I think it's the same bucket. And I think the question is, what's the differential diagnosis? Um, I think, you know, post-viral influenza, you know, we all, if anybody's had influenza, uh, and or had a reaction to a vaccine where you feel flu-like, you know what that feels like. You know, sort of deep muscle soreness and whatnot tends to be diffuse, can be joints as well, can be tendinopathy, can be my, myalgic, you know. So I think that always should be considered. But in fact, there are very few cases of people that will have sustained, continued algas that are post-viral. Um, I always teach and I've occasionally seen a case of endocrinopathy causing algas. So that would be disorders, high or low, of thyroid, adrenal, and parathyroid glands. Can't say that I've seen much of that. I know that we all do TSHs on all our patients. And honestly, has that ever really panned out or paid off? The return on that's about 1 in 3,000. But you should still consider it. You know, one of the best known and easily, most easily diagnosed is polymyalgia rheumatica. But that's not really hurt all over. That's usually more proximal um, shoulders, neck, upper extremities, hips and legs and lower extremities. Um, not down to the feet, but, you know, sort of like between the knees and hips, not uncommon. You get stiffness. They got, you know, the labs. It's not a hard diagnosis. Um, but our gal, as I said, she's in her 30s, so this is unlikely. It could be the early onset of connective tissue disease. But I always contend that, that while that may be an unusual presentation, by the time that is their presentation, it is usually likely there is other evidence in play. They will have rainouts. They will have dysphagia. They will have had you know, rashes and uh, swollen joints and where it's not going to be hard to diagnose lupus, RA, systemic sclerosis, myositis, spondylitis, etc. Um, your greatest worry, of course, is that it could be a cancer. Um, and how often does perineoplastic manifest with diffuse pain and algaes? Actually, not that commonly. They're more likely to present with focal, um, uh, illegal articular, sometimes polyarticular, um, joint problems, but, you know, widespread, not likely. Hypophosphatemia on the list, can't say I've ever seen it. Um, hypermobility syndrome, you know, a young person presenting with pain uh, and all over, you should always ask them, can you do any circus tricks? Can you dislocate your shoulder? Can you 
bend over and put your palms on the floor. You know, um, I once had a patient, a young, young guy, 17, came with his mother and his sister and, you know, it looked a little like fibromyalgia, but I wasn't really too sure. And, and I, at the end, I wasn't really clear what it was. And then the, the, his little sister said, show him that thing you do. Show him that thing you do. And he said, no, no, no. And I said, what's that thing you do? And he grabbed his Adam's apple. And I, and I kid you not, he took it and pulled it out like about three inches to the right. And it sprang back into place like a, like a, like a spring. And it was almost like a, you know, a Wile E. Coyote cartoon. And um, sure enough, he had hypermobility, had Ehlers-Danlos, um, pretty interesting. Speaking of hypermobility, Ehlers-Danlos, you know, it runs with, you know, fibromyalgia, hypermobility, Ehlers-Danlos, um, POTS. Um, these are all kind of the one and the same, although there may be different pathways into the gain. They all pretty much the same. There's sleep disorders, amplified pain, etc. This patient told me in the first visit, she had recently had um, surgery for a Chiari malformation. That's the Arnold Chiari malformation. There's a few different types, but basically you get um, a near herniation of the um, medulla down through um, the foramen magnum. And it is that compression that is very often associated with fibromyalgic-like manifestations, extreme fatigue, um, made plus or minus neurologic manifestations. Uh, when they are of a certain severity and type, they are correctable by surgery. Interestingly, patients who've had Chiari malformation surgery, in my experience, do not have resolution of their fatigue, fibro fog, widespread, widespread pain in muscles and joints. And, you know, the game goes on. So um, while most people who have pain and fatigue probably have depression, um, a sleep disorder, and fibromyalgia. There are other disorders that can also get you in the game. And those latter few I mentioned, the Chiari malformation, the uh, hypermobility, and the Ehlers-Danlos, and, and POTS, the postural orthostatic hypotension with tachycardia syndrome, they all seem to run in packs. So you should look for them in packs. When you see one of those, you should think, is this a sleep disorder and fibromyalgia as well? That's my case for the day. Tune in tomorrow to hear more about great cases from the clinic. Welcome to QD Clinic. I'm Jack Cush with Room Now. QD Clinic is brought to you by Room Now Live. Today we're talking about smoking and rheumatoid arthritis. Amazingly, the first two patients I saw today both had the same story. They had rheumatoid arthritis. They were doing actually kind of good, although they haven't always been doing good. They are both on aggressive combination therapy, biologic and methotrexate and something else. Um, they both have the same story. They both are smokers. They both know. They've heard me talk about it. You know, complain about it, plea, beg about smoking and their rheumatoid arthritis. And they're all told the same thing. Smoking causes rheumatoid arthritis, significantly so. Smoking worsens rheumatoid arthritis. And if you could stop, maybe you could get better. But, you know, what's the data? What's the story here? What you need to know, of course, is the association. We do know from studies, preclinical RA studies, 
that clearly show us that patients who are at risk, genetically at risk, um, patients who have developed signs of autoimmunity, um, they are more likely in people who are smokers with the shared epitope, with CCP or rheumatoid factor, that smoking becomes one of the major environmental influences that tips the balance from a genetic risk to now um, um, autoimmunity and uh, adaptive immunity that's leaning towards the development of a chronic inflammatory state. Um, so again, it's a really important uh, risk factor. It's not surprising given what smoke will do within the lungs. Um, it promotes citronization of proteins. It um, activates alveolar macrophages to you know, spew a lot of pro-inflammatory cytokines and mediators that are not good for the lung and not good for rheumatoid arthritis. It is a preventable risk factor for RA. Um, it's estimated that smoking contributes to a, about 25% of all cases of RA in this world. Seems to be a high number, but I like pointing to it because it might scare some people. We do know that the more you smoke, meaning how many pack, uh, packs per day or packs per week you uh, actually take part in uh, and how long you smoke will also up the risk. So, you know, a 10-pack year history is going to have a high risk. A 20-pack year history is going to have a higher risk. Um, and again, for how, so how long you're doing it, and, and it, it obviously is an important factor. And that means people who may take it uh, intermittently are still going to be at significant risk. Um, interestingly, uh, RA patients are at a higher risk for cardiovascular disease, cancer, lymphoma, osteoporosis, all factors and all diseases that are also made worse by, that's right, you guessed it, smoking. Um, Non-smokers compared to smokers, guess what, they do much better. And you know, sobering data, a lot of this data actually comes from numerous great researchers. Karen Kostenbatter looked at this uh, a few years ago, and she also showed that from the nurse's health study that um, you could have stopped smoking for 20 years and still carried an increased risk uh, of what smoking can do. And it seems like you need to be off smoking, off tobacco for more than 20 years for that risk to go back down to somewhat close to normal. So. Again, smoking a bad, bad player in our patients with rheumatoid arthritis, and we should be advocating, advocating strongly against it. And, uh, and again, how do people stop smoking? It's a very difficult thing to do. The evidence is pretty clear that the patients who do best are those who join a program, a program like Smoke Enders. Um, they should, it helps when they join it with someone else. Uh, it helps if they are motivated by you, their physician. Um, and sometimes these people will do better by taking medications that will help in cessation of uh, tobacco dependency. Um, that's it for smoking. Please stop. Welcome to Cutie Clinic. I'm Jack Cush with RoomNow.com. Cutie Clinic is brought to you by RoomNow Live, the next great virtual streaming live rheumatology meeting March 20 and 21. Sign up now. Today's case is oy vey, an elevated ESR. My apologies to those of you who don't know what oy vey means. It means grief. It means, good golly, what am I going to do? I saw a consult today 
93-year-old woman, not feeling well, having fatigue. That's what her primary care doctor said. She said, I'm fine, I got nothing wrong with me. Yeah, I lost a few pounds, but I'm fine. But then you look at her labs and oh my goodness, her ESR is 75, her CRP is 4.0 milligrams per deciliter. That's 40 milligrams per liter. That's high. That's not nominal. She's 93 and looks good. She really looks good for 93. Question is, what's the deal with the SED rate and the CRP? A few bits of wisdom about SED rates and CRP. Um, a single elevation means pretty much nothing. And I think that it's important to be aware of um, the guidelines that are out there. I, I actually looked this up and still the best guideline is published in Annals of Internal Medicine back in 1986. Harold Fox, Har I'm sorry, Harold Sox and Matt Liang, great paper. One that's really worth having in your, in your uh, collection. Recommendations for an elevated ESR. The ESR should not be used to screen asymptomatic individuals. Two, the ESR should be used selectively, interpreted with caution uh, in situations where there is no physical abnormalities. Again, serious disease is, is uh, usually associated with seriously abnormal labs. The converse is not true. If there, three, if there is no immediate explanation for an increased ESR, the physician should repeat the test in several months rather than undergo an exhaustive search for occult disease. Exhaustive, expensive, often useless. Number four, the SED rate is useful in the diagnosis and monitoring of temporal arteritis, and giant cell arteritis, and polymyalgia rheumatica. Number five, in diagnosing and monitoring patients with rheumatoid arthritis, the ESR should be used principally to resolve conflicting clinical evidence. Really important point. And six, the ESR may be useful in monitoring patients with Hodgkin's disease. So the question really is, um, what are you using it for? If you have someone with high disease activity, do you need a SED rate? Not really. If they have no disease activity and they're in remission, do you need a SED rate and CRP? I don't know why. Again, resolving conflicting clinical evidence seems to make the most amount of sense. The question is, what do you do in patients, like if this 93-year-old comes back, and she still has a high, very high SED rate or CRP, or God forbid, even worse, one's really high and one's really low. That's another special kind of conundrum. Frequently encountered, I got a lot of patients like that. What am I doing about them? Pretty much nothing, because I do a good exam, I do a good history, I do routine screening things, I make sure they get their health maintenance measures, and again, a long, exhaustive, expensive search for occult disease really is not going to be appropriate. Now, if the patient's not doing well, then you should certainly be aggressive in your assessment. Multiple papers show us, of course, that elevated acute phase reactants are seen to be highest in people with infection, next with autoimmune and connective tissue disease, and lastly with malignancy. But the list of other diseases and things that contribute to this are numerous. In my clinic, in my experience, I have a lot of patients with hyperlipidemia, uh, and or who have obesity, significant morbid obesity, in whom they have elevated SED rates or CRPs, and often not both. And in those people, I'm watching them. I'm not doing anything about it, but I'm watching them. And is that reasonable? Well, you do certainly know about the data between um, LDL, 
and uh, its associations with cardiovascular disease, and that association being um, having a biomarker of high sensitivity CRPs. So there's plenty of evidence about CRPs and, and hyperlipidemia. Same can be said for, well, maybe the same can be said for obesity. And it's not always mediated by hyperlipidemia that they may have an elevated CRP or uh, ESR. Let me uh, give you a list from a recent publication um, that says um, mild elevation of CRP. What causes that? This is just a reading. Um, viral infections, late pregnancy, periodontitis, stomatitis, sinusitis, um, vaginitis, um, intestinal hyperpermeability, whatever that is, bacterial translocation, now we're getting really exciting, um, insulin resistance, obesity, uremia, um, sleep disorders, chronic fatigue, depression, it's kind of like a hodgepodge, high, you know high, what high is, it's acute inflammation, sepsis, bacterial infections, burns, malignancies, um, vasculitis, renal disease. Conditions associated with mild increases in sed rate, kind of the same. Age, um, by the way, CRP doesn't really go up very much with age. Um, um, more so in females, the equation for sed rates, for those of you who don't know. If you want to know what your normal sed rate should be according to your age, if you're a male, it's your age divided by 2. If you're a female, it's your age divided by 2 plus 10. So my 93-year-old, her age divided by 2 would be 46.5 plus 10. 56.5 should be her normal, uh, up to that would be normal for her. Uh, anemia, red blood cell abnormalities, uh, dilutional problems, a tilted ESR tube, um, diabetes, renal disease, heart disease, collagen, vascular diseases. So anyway, I'm not sure if this helped you in your deliberations on elevated sed rates and CRPs. Oy vey, what am I going to do? Um, in my 93-year-old, I said, you know what? Tell your primary care to repeat the test in a month or two, and we'll see what's going on. Oh, and by the way, let's look into why you have anorexia and 10 pounds of weight loss. That may be the more fruitful investigation than a low-sensitivity, low-specificity test called ESR and CRP. Tune in for more.